So we're going to begin with a word association today. The way that works is I say a word, and you think about what word comes to your mind. Don't, don't scream it out. Please don't scream it out. <laughs> but just think it, all right? First word, suffering. Second word, trials. Third word, loss. Now I want to read some scriptures, and you can just follow along, and I want you to see if you can see a pattern of responses that we're to have to suffering and trials and loss. First comes from James, the first chapter, verse 2. It says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. First Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. First Peter 4, 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Matthew 5, 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Is it just me, or do you see a pattern there? Over and over again, that we're to choose joy. You see, to rejoice is a choice. It really is. And it's funny, many times when we go through tough times, what happens is we go immediately to the why. Why is this happening to me? Why is it happening to my family? Why now? Most of the time when you see a scripture from God's word about suffering, it doesn't go to the why, it goes to the what now. It moves to our response because really, even if you knew why you were suffering, it wouldn't take away the suffering, would it? It doesn't really get on the solution side of the problem that you find yourself in. But how we respond makes all the difference in the world, not only for ourselves, but for everyone around us. You see, we can't control what happens to us in this fallen world, but we can control our response to what happens to us. So how do we do that? Because it's difficult, isn't it? It, it almost, for some of us today, it seems impossible to even consider the option of rejoice in the light of suffering. Somebody once said that behind every behavior is a belief, and I, and I think that's true. How we behave depends upon what we believe. And while that is true, I do believe that there is something that goes on between what we believe and how we behave. I think in the middle of that are some emotions that are created because of our perception of what reality is. You go to a movie theater and you're sitting there and you're watching the screen and you're focused in on that illusion. You're focused in on the special effects, the music that they have laid into the background, and you find yourself crying. Because for a moment, you believe that what's going on in the screen is actually what's going on in your life. Or you find yourself in a scary movie actually being afraid. I remember when I was a kid and I used to go to uh, movies that scared me. I, I remember that in a, as a defense mechanism, I would look around the theater to remind myself that I was there with other people. I would think about the popcorn I was eating. I'd think about the sticky floor 
beneath me. Anything I could to break the illusion of what I had come to believe was actually going on. Because what we believe creates our emotions and our emotions drive our behavior. Here's a student who has come to believe that they have to be accepted in a certain group of their peers or they're not going to be happy. And then all of a sudden they don't get an invite to a certain party or they're not allowed to sit at a certain table and something starts brewing inside of them. It's a fear. And then that fear drives their behavior. They begin to cross lines they thought they would never cross. They begin to do things to be accepted in that group that go against their morals. And it began with a belief that led to a fear that drove their behavior. Here's an adult who has come to believe somehow living in America, imagine that, that happiness equates to whatever you own. That money and what money provides for you will provide fulfillment. And then something happens. Uh, Maybe it's a loss of a job. Maybe it's the fact that they uh, spend in a way that allows their bank account to be depleted. And all of a sudden, they look in their checkbook and they, and they look at the pile of bills and credit card debt that they have and something starts simmering deep inside of them. It's a fear that they're not going to have the things they think they have to have in order to be happy. And then all of a sudden, they begin to cross some lines they never thought they would cross. They begin to lie on their tax returns. They begin to work an inordinate amount of hours and neglect the relationships in their family and friends in order to achieve. They work at a job that they're not happy in, that God didn't make them for, that they're not called to, but because it has a payoff that they somehow think will bring what they think they need, and they may even go to the extent of lying or cheating or stealing. Where did it begin? It began with a belief that led to an emotion that drove their behavior. In Matthew, the eighth chapter, we read that the disciples are going with Jesus on a boat out into the Sea of Galilee after Jesus has taught all day. And while they're out on that lake on that particular night, a rogue wind comes along. And with that wind, uh, rain, and the Bible says that the storm got so great that the waves were actually covering their little boat. A lot of those disciples had a their background uh, being fishermen. And so they begin to do everything they knew how to do to solve the problem. They begin to tie things down and throw other things overboard. But they realized they were in big trouble and fear gripped them. And then someone noticed that Jesus wasn't around and finally they found him beneath the boat weary and asleep and they woke him up and they said, Lord, don't you even care that we're perishing? And he came to the deck of that boat and he spoke to the wind and the sea and it became completely calm. The Bible tells us in that chapter of Matthew that the men marveled that even the wind and the sea obeyed him. Imagine that. And then he looked at them and he asked them this question. He said, why are you fearful, O men of little faith? And Jesus actually answers his own question, doesn't he? He said, you are fearful because of what you don't believe. You are fearful, you have an emotion that has driven your behavior because of the lack of faith. Understand this, that fear and faith cannot reside in the same space. 
to the extent that you have faith, to that extent it eradicates the fear in your life. To the extent that your beliefs create fear, that driving emotion in your life, to that extent there will be no faith. Why are you fearful, O men of little faith? You're full of fear and because of that you have very little room for confidence, for trust. The same thing is true for us if we are going to choose to rejoice. It's not by just gritting it out. It's not by trying harder. It starts with our belief. And in these last couple of weeks, we've talked about the fact that there are two beliefs that we have to have about tough times. There are two beliefs that we have to have about the time in the furnace. The first belief that is in this fallen world, we will have tough times. In 1 Peter in the fourth chapter in verse 12, it says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Why are we shocked when the Bible makes it so clear that we live on a broken planet and in this world we will have tough times? Now, some of us have not come to that belief, and so because we don't understand what the Bible says about this, because we have Americanized our Christianity to say that because I'm a follower of God, God somehow owes me that I'm always going to get that job and my uh, family members are always going to be healed and everything's going to be smooth. That's something we, we made up. It's not in the scripture. And because of that, we end up living in fear and anxiety because we haven't accepted God's truth that in this fallen world, we will have tough times. I still struggle with putting my seatbelt on because when I first started driving, I remember that I had this erroneous thought that somehow if I put my seatbelt on, I would accept the fact that I would have a wreck and that somehow if I didn't put the seatbelt on, I wouldn't have the wreck. That would somehow protect me. Now that's stupid is what that is. And there's some of you who have resisted the biblical truth that in this world, fallen world, we will have tough times, thinking somehow that it's going to keep you from having tough times, that if today you said, you know what, I want to accept that, that God can handle that, that that's not the unthinkable. Some of you think that if you accept that today, that that will bring tough times upon your life. Let me tell you, they're coming anyway. They are. That we have to have that biblical truth. The second truth that we have to have is that we have a loving God who will take our temporary tough times and he will turn them into eternal gain. And we place those into his hands. In Romans, the eighth chapter, verse 28, it says this. It says, and we know, emphasis on we know, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say that God causes good things to happen. It says that God takes the things that happen to us in this world and when we give them to him, when we walk according to his purposes, he's able then to redeem them, to bring more good out of them than evil. Our God has the ability to take the temporary tough times in our life and create eternal gains. And we talked last week about some of the ways that he does that. It's not limited to these ways, but one of the ways that he uses our tough times is he uses those tough times to expose our inadequate gods, the lesser gods that we have come to depend upon. And to the extent that we're disappointed when things happen in this world, 
It's to that extent that we're depending on people or things to bring us happiness instead of depending upon God. He also uses those tough times to strengthen our faith. When we have to exercise our spiritual muscles, when we have to put our trust in him, we become stronger people and are able to handle even greater challenges in life. He also redeems our tough times in that he produces in us a healthy humility. We realize that we can't talk our way out of every situation. We can't come up with a strategy. We can't throw enough money at it to fix all things. We're not in control. We can't save ourselves and we can't run our lives. And that humility is so essential because what it does is it causes us to depend upon the Lord. And when we are weak, then we really are strong. He also takes our tough times and he redeems it by giving us an opportunity to witness. And if there's one person who could spend eternity in heaven because of the way that they see us face our tough times with God's grace, it gives purpose to our pain. He also uses our tough times to increase our community with each other and our compassion for each other. And when you go through tough times and I'm able to take the resources that God has given me for that very purpose and I share them generously with you, and when I go through tough times and you can reach out and give me an encouraging word, we have a bond and a community that is not possible in smooth times. He also redeems our tough times in that he gives us a deeper connection to Jesus Christ himself. It's called the fellowship of suffering. When we experience just a little bit of what our suffering Savior did for us, it causes us to have an intimacy with him that comes in no other way. And when we call upon his name and he meets us in the fire, we walk out of that with a different relationship with the Lord than when we walked in. And finally, he redeems our tough times in that he prepares us for heaven in that every time we lose something in this temporal world or we lose someone, In this world who goes on before us, we're able to let go of this life a little bit more to open our hands for a new heaven and a new earth that God is preparing for us. In these and many other ways that we will not know this side of heaven, our loving God can take our temporary tough times and he can provide for us eternal gain. When we embrace those two truths, The reality of suffering and the great love and power of our God, then what happens is to the extent that we can do that, we can choose joy. We can make the choice to rejoice. It begins with our belief, a belief that there is a God who loves us, a belief that that God who loves us has the ability to redeem all things, every pain, every day, a belief that God can take our tough times and turn them into eternal gains, Uh, a belief that our God, if he allows suffering to come into our life, must know something that we can't see from our obstructed view, a belief that God suffered in Jesus Christ so one day we don't have to suffer at all. There's a little book that I read to my two daughters as they were growing up that I've now read to four of my five grandchildren and I look forward to reading it to the fifth. It's called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Have you read the book? It's a great book. We're going on a bear hunt. And as you go on the bear hunt, you encounter various obstacles and when you encounter the obstacle, we say we can't go over it, we can't go under it. 
we can't go around it, I guess we'll have to go through it. You encounter that river and you say, I can't go over the river, can't go under the river, can't go around the river, I guess we'll have to go through the river. Splish, splash, splish, splash. And we try so hard, don't we, to go over our suffering? We try to go under the furnace. We go, try to go around the trials, but you can't. You got to go through it. Splish, splash, splish, splash. But with the Lord, we can go through it. How do you go through the furnace? In Hebrews, the 12th chapter, it tells us. Look, if you will, on the back of your worship guide, or you can just look on the screen there. In Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 2, it says this. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, let me just stop right there and just say this. Anytime you come to a scripture in the Bible that has the word, therefore, you always want to ask the question, what is therefore, therefore? All right? And the reason that therefore is there, there in, in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 1, is because in Hebrews 11, it talks about all the saints who went before us who suffered and are now in heaven, where there is no sickness, there is no pain, there is no mourning, and the tears have been dried from their eyes for the very last time. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? How can you stay the course fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith? Ah, there's faith then. No fear, but faith. He's the author of the faith that replaces fear. He's the perfecter of faith that per, it replaces fear. Who for the joy, oh, there's that word again. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh my goodness, there's so much in that verse, in those two verses. It says that we're to Lay aside that which entangles us, that keeps us from running the race. We've got to lay aside the, our Americanized version of Christianity that is a, is a heresy of a prosperity gospel that says following Jesus is about selfishness and it's about self-centeredness and it's about comfort and it's about ease. It is not. We have to lay that aside. And we have to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And Jesus is the personification of what we're talking about today. Think about it. His life and his death reminds us of the reality of suffering, doesn't it? Born to poor parents in a horse trough, running for their lives, persecuted while he was here, dying a death on a cross as a criminal, that's the one we follow. As Christians, we're followers of Jesus. We're gonna follow Jesus. He said, if you wanna come after me, pick up your cross. Then come follow after me. 
His very life and death is a reminder of the reality of suffering in this world. His resurrection is a reminder of the way that God redeems all things. While he's hanging on the cross, all of his followers think that all is lost. The battle has been lost. They can't see any good to come out of the death of Jesus Christ. And all the while, God is behind the scenes doing stuff they can't see. He's redeeming you and he's redeeming me. He's making it possible for all of us who are sinners to go cleansed before God and live in a perfect place for eternity. His death is a reminder of the reality of suffering. His resurrection is a reminder of God's redeeming ability. His ascension into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the throne of God is a reminder for the hope that every one of us have. How do you choose joy? You look at Jesus. Jesus didn't just preach about it. Jesus lived it. Jesus is the reality of the life that God is calling us to. Now, let me say this. In the middle of the fire, you can come back and you can choose to believe these things. If there's a God that loves you, that he can redeem it, that he's doing stuff that you can't see, and that he's preparing a place one day, which is our hope, where all of this goes away. You can do that. In the middle of the fire, you can choose to believe that. But I think a better choice is to choose it before you go into the fire. Because what happens is when we, suffering comes upon us, if we don't already understand what the Bible says about this world and what the Bible says about our God, what happens is that it, it comes up on us suddenly. It surprises us. It shocks us. And all of a sudden, our emotions get away from us, and it's hard to come back and to be centered and it's the difference between being a, a, a thermometer or a thermostat. You see, all a thermometer can do is reflect its environment. If it's hot, the thermometer will show that it's hot. If it's cold, the thermometer will show that it's cold. But a thermostat is preset. And the thermostat doesn't reflect its environment. The thermostat changes its environment. And the way that we keep the course, the way that we run the race that is set before us is that we believe what God says about this world. And we believe what the Bible says about God. And when what God says is going to happen, not if, but when it happens, then we say, yeah, God told me it would be like this. And God also told me what I can do and the difference that I can make. And I don't know all the ways that God's going to redeem this, but I know God is at work. And I don't like what I'm going through right now, and I don't understand it, and I don't agree with it, but I choose joy. The joy of the privilege of being used by God. There's a couple in our church by the name of Emily and Devin Colbert, and they will celebrate their fifth wedding anniversary here in about two months. Uh, Devin's lifelong dream was to be a fireman and uh, on December 12th a couple of years ago that dream was uh, rudely interrupted when he was in an accident that left him paralyzed about three weeks ago before I started this message series I received a letter from the Colbert family that I want to share with you
been a member of Lake Point Church for 14 years. Over the years, I've listened to many sermons, but there is one that I continually go back to and am reminded of daily. It was a message from a few years ago that said, it's not if, it's when. Will you be ready when your storm comes? It was about being aware of trials and hardships before being faced with them. It was about understanding that the storms would come and being rooted enough in your faith to not be shaken. My husband and I speak daily of God's goodness and blessings given to our family. We love the Lord, we pray together, we love life. Early on in our marriage, God provided Devin a position with the Garland Fire Department. It was something that we prayed for and deeply wanted. We never saw or could have imagined what was to come. Little did I know that lessons learned from a message years ago would be the exact words that flooded my mind immediately following my husband's diagnosis of paralysis. I sat there in a hotel room after his accident by myself and thought, this is it. I can sink or stay firm in what I believe about God or throw it in the gutter and lose sight of his goodness, which now seemed to be deeply hidden covered in pain, fear, uncertainty, and sadness. I was taught how Christians should respond in tough times. I just never thought that it would be us. Even in sadness and hurt, God is good. I find comfort in seeing His presence all around me. Sunrises, sunsets, the wind blowing, the birds singing. I've learned to trust His promises even when I can't see where He's leading me. I was tempted to push God away because of my fear and anger, but I've learned that when I would seek Him more, especially in my times of desperation and despair, He would draw me even closer and give me peace. One of the many things that God has provided during this difficult season in our lives is the support of our church. You came to the hospital, you didn't have to, but you did, and you prayed with me in the hallway outside of the ICU. You prayed with my family and friends, hand in hand, calling on God as we waited for any news from the doctors. You may never know the comfort you brought me then. I thank you, my church, for loving my family enough to speak God's love, healing, comfort, and peace into our lives. We thank you for helping us walk through the fire. The rest of the story. On October 23rd, uh, Devin will start back to work. Although he's confined to his wheelchair, uh, through therapy he's been able to regain some use of his arms and his hands. He'll be working in the fire marshal's office as a coordinator and retain his status as a fireman. <laughs> now the rest of the rest of the story. So uh, Emily... Uh, God, one of the ways that God has redeemed her tough times is it's given her compassion for others who are less fortunate in other ways. So she comes up every week as a volunteer to work in our food pantry to help us stock the shelves. And so this last Thursday, she shows up and she's got food that she's donating in her own car. And so as she goes to the door to get a cart to bring the food into our food pantry, somebody pulls into the parking lot of our church, jumps out, and reaches into her car and steals her purse with her checkbook and all of her money, some gift cards, 
some personal things that she only has one copy of, the keys to her house and her car. We live in a fallen world, do we not? And yet, Emily and Devin have chosen to see this for what it is, a distraction from the evil one. And they're going to stay the course. They have some deep-seated beliefs in place, and they're going to run the race that God has set before them. How about you? In Daniel, the third chapter, in verse 17, we read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were told that they will be thrown into a fiery furnace if they don't fall down and worship a false god. In verse 17, it says, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Don't miss verse 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You understand what these gentlemen said? These gentlemen said, our God is able to deliver us. Our God will deliver us. And then by faith, they said even a greater exclamation of trust. And they said, even if he doesn't, We're not giving in. We're not giving up. They not only trust that their God was able, but they trusted him enough to let him determine how they would be delivered and when they would be delivered. That's faith, not fear. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us for giving us life itself and then sending Jesus Christ to pay for our sins so that we could live forever with you in a perfect place. Until that becomes a reality, we thank you for the grace that you have given us, for the the real truth that you've laid before us about what we can expect out of this world and what we can expect from you. Thank you for a loving church family. Thank you for the community that you've given us here until that day, for the encouragement that we can give to each other and the love that we can share. And thank you, dear Father, that we're going to be able to spend eternity with each other and most importantly, you. Until that day, we choose to trust you. We choose to believe in that which we cannot see on this side of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.